I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no number 11. This is the top 10 important UFO books. Or rather, these are the top 10 important UFO books. Uh, grammar, grammar's important. So a while back, I got an email from a listener asking what I thought my top 10 important UFO books were. Now, not being one to waste a good idea more than two or three times a week, I decided that instead of telling them, I would make it into an episode. Now, I'm pretty sure none of these are going to be books you're unaware of. None of them are obscure. The very act of declaring them to be important means that I can't very well, in good faith, pull some kind of, only three people know about this book, but it's super important sort of deal. That's... Don't do that. Uh, So no, I won't be bringing up Greta Woodrow, Reinhold Schmidt, or Helen Gismondi. I made every effort to abide by the spirit of the thing and stick to books that I consider important and, and that other people would probably consider to be important, and I'm going to attempt to justify that important designation as we go. But I'm not gonna say that all of these would make my top 10 favorite UFO books, because of course I'm going to save that for another episode. Some other procedural notes. This is not a ranked list, and not in any particular order. Well, that's not entirely true. It is in a particular order, but the order is based on how the copies, my copies of the books, are stacked on my desk so as not to fall over. So the order here is basically physical size. And ranking these wouldn't work really well anyway. As you know, there are distinct genres within the UFO book field. So comparing, for example, a contactee account with a survey of more sciencey stuff, you know, it, it might not work well. You can compare them and the approaches they take, but it's awkward to declare one better than the other. Besides, this is about importance, not about the best. And there's a difference there, I think. One last note, and aren't all the best podcasts the ones that front load a bunch of disclaimers? The listening audience, I find, is, is clamoring for more caveats in their, uh, in their episodes. It should go without saying, but obviously it doesn't, that any book's inclusion in this list is not meant to disparage or dismiss any of the other 12 trillion UFO books published over the last 70-odd years. Um, so if there's one that you think is particularly important that I don't talk about. Uh, Just, you have my blessing to just assume that was number 11 and it just didn't make the cut just just by that much, just by a a whisker. Um, So, let's go. Okay, I have one more caveat. I did not uh, script out extensive comments about these books. So, apart from the preparation I took in choosing them off the shelf, this is very much a, a sort of gut reaction. I wanted to sort of leave this like, like, okay, if I had to just look at this book and tell somebody why it was important, what would I, what would I say? So this is what I would say. And we are going to start with the top book on the stack. We are going to pick it up off the stack. We are going to look at it. I'm looking at it right now. You can't see it, but trust me, it's, uh, it's, it's lavender. It's, uh, it's got a, a sort of flying saucer thing on the front. 
It has a price tag from Hyde Brothers Used Books in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I think back in uh, 1996, I paid a buck 45 for this. It's a uh, mass market paperback size, and it is Messengers of Deception, UFO Contacts and Cults by Jacques Vallée. And um, what I like about this book and what why I think it's important, this isn't about what I like, this is what I think is important. What I think is important about this book is summed up really well in the blurb on the back. And I can remember picking up this book in the bookstore back in 1996 and being intrigued by the collection of topics presented on the back of this paperback. Quote, too many cases of accidental alien contact, UFO cults praying to the skies, secret psychotronic weapons for bending the human mind. Jacques Vallée reveals, after 18 years of scientific investigation, things that add up to something far more menacing than monsters from outer space. That intrigued me, because by this point, I'd already, I don't want to say, put together the pieces of the UFO puzzle, because... You know, I hadn't, but by that point, I had already encountered mind control conspiracy theory research and cults were huge. 1996, we were on the cusp of Heaven's Gate. There was, I think when I bought it in 96, there was already talk of, of Comet Hale-Bopp and, you know, cults were out there. Of course, this book takes a lot of different strands that of things that appear in other, other books by Valet in other sort of non-UFO conspiracy type books and in more general social studies sort of approaches to um, to religion and, and new thought and things like that and blends them all together and presents a deeper picture of the UFO mystery, as we might call it, than uh, many other books had by that time. We're on the cusp of a lot more study and thought being given to the notion of human manipulation in the UFO field. And I think this book by Valet was on the, uh, on the forefront of that. And that's why I think it deserves a spot in the top 10 important UFO books. Here's a selection. Messengers of Deception proposes a new theory of UFOs that can be stated in three paragraphs. Unidentified flying objects operate according to an understanding of our universe that transcends ordinary space-time physics. If we are living in an associative universe, as I am suggesting, then we must expect such paranormal effects, possibly triggered by and accessible to human consciousness. This would explain both the impossible movements of UFOs and the psychological phenomena of contact. Two, the main effect of UFOs on their witnesses is a conditioning process. Through exposure to its powerful imagery, man appears to be acquiring new forms of behavior and new models of his relationship to the world of nature. Although the source of this conditioning seems to be a technology, the actual mechanism still eludes us. Whether or not that is controlled by human beings is an open question. 3. The social process caused by the belief in the phenomenon takes the form of new sects, movements, and contact cults. Close observation of these cults shows that they are monitored and in some cases deliberately manipulated by occult groups, government organizations, and extremist political movements. Next up, another small paperback book. Um, I don't remember where I got this one, but Flying Saucer Occupants by Coral and Jim Lorenzen. 
This is, I did a whole episode on this book a while back. Um, it's the, it's sort of the granddaddy of them all. Grandmother, grand, grandparent, ancestor, progenitor of them all. If you have heard a story from back in the day about a strange, inexplicable, incomprehensible, troubling, weird, hilarious, whatever encounter between a saucer being and a human, odds are, if it occurred before the mid-60s or so, it was in this book. This is the book that is the place most people found out about the Antonio Villas-Boas case. This is the book where most people, when they got into the field back in the day, first heard about just the wide variety of types of encounters that people had, that it wasn't just a question of this dichotomy between contactee-style humans from Venus and little gray guys doing abductions. There's a whole array of things that people have experienced and it would not surprise me if a lot of people who put in thought back in the 70s and 80s and later about um, the connections between UFO encounters and other forms of older forms of folklore wouldn't surprise me if some of the people who were into that stuff first read some of those encounters and had some of those ideas reading books like Flying Saucer Occupants. Here's a sample. A human-sized, headless, bat-winged creature approached a couple of teenagers on November 16, 1963, after the boys saw a bright object land in a field near Sandling Park, Hythe, Kent, in England. Later investigation by teenagers curious about the report turned up an expanse of bracken that had been flattened and three giant footprints, an inch deep, two feet long, and nine inches wide. The elusive Sandling Park Hythe Kent Mothman, obviously. And now for book number three, pulling it off the stack. It's another mass market paperback sized thing. Um, this is a movie tie-in edition of a book, which is a little weird. That might give you a clue as to what it is. It is John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies, now a major motion picture starring Richard Gere. An underrated movie, actually. I, I liked it. Um, it wasn't like the book, but I liked it anyway. So why is the Mothman Prophecies important? I should just refer you to the episodes we did about the Mothman in uh, in West Virginia, the Point Pleasant Mothman, as opposed to all the other Mothmen who keep popping up in uh, subsequent decades. But the Mothman Prophecies is important for a number of reasons. Probably the most significant reason for its significance is that this is the account of the Mothman Point Pleasant sequence, constellation, selection, collection, whatever word you want to use, of paranormal events that people are most familiar with. If they are familiar with the Mothman deal, they are probably familiar with it either from reading the Mothman prophecies or reading a webpage that summarizes the Mothman prophecies or listening to a podcast episode that summarizes the Mothman prophecies or watching a documentary that sort of summarizes the Mothman prophecies. And as we talked about in our Mothman episodes, that's an interesting sort of thing that happens because the book was published you know, seven, eight years after the event. And you know, compresses the timeline and conflates some things and, and in large part makes it as much about John Keel's investigation of the Mothman as the Mothman stuff itself. 
It blends the ufological and the cryptozoological and the paranoid conspiracy and, and psychological aspects of the phenomenon all into one very readable book. And much like Messengers of Deception, we have this book coming out in sort of a transition period between the 60s and the 80s where the paranormal world was, be we was you know, sort of choosing what it was going to be. Lots of new strands of thought and ideas coming out during that time and, and making their way into books you could buy at the supermarket. And I think the significance of the Mothman prophecies, much like the significance of Messengers of Deception, is for combining into one narrative or one argument a lot of different ways of looking at the phenomenon and a lot of the different manifestations adopted by the phenomenon. Here is a sample While Mothman and Indrid Cold attracted all the publicity and turned everyone's eyes to the deep skies of night, the strange ones began to arrive in West Virginia. They trooped down from the hills along the muddy back roads up from the winding hollers like an army of leprechauns seeking impoverished shoemakers. It was open season on the human race, and so the ancient procession of the damned marched once more. A doctor and his wife driving along a country road in a snowstorm saw a huge caped figure of a man struggling through the snow, so they stopped to give him a ride. He vanished. There was nothing but whirling snowflakes and night where he had stood. Black limousines halted in front of hill homes and deeply tanned census takers inquired about the number of children living in the families. Always the children. Next, a book that I'm not sure we have ever mentioned on the show before. I'm sure somebody who remembers these episodes better than I do will correct me on that. But this is a book by Dr. David Jacobs, but not any of the ones you probably have heard about or heard most about. This is his book from the mid-70s based on his PhD dissertation in history back when he did history called The UFO Controversy in America. And this is, I believe, um, and I'm willing to be corrected, but I don't think you'll be able to, this is the first book-length scholarly history of the UFO phenomenon in the United States uh, that had ever been published. And you know, why did, it, why did it take until the 1970s for this to happen? Well, because it's the nature of history to have to sort of wait till things have been going on for a while or have been over for a while to take a look at it. And the mid 1970s is a good time to take sort of a look back at the UFO controversy in America. We are in the the post Condon committee era where a team of scientists have said there's nothing to see here about UFOs and the Air Force says okay and supposedly gets out of the UFO business and Jacobs comes in with a a sort of sprawling history of the like the title says the controversy in America and when I first read this book, I, I thought he had, you know, given some short shrift to the contactees, didn't discuss them as much as he could have. And I still sort of stand by that, but he did a better job with it than I remembered. And I think the importance of this book lies not only in its sort of status as as the first sort of solid history of the UFO uh, phenomenon in the United States, but also that it presents that history in a fairly even handed very broad way, showing the array of different types of belief over time. In fact, I really think Jacobs should have just stuck to this kind of book instead of going off down the, the abduction hypnosis route, hypnosis, 
hypnosis route as uh, as he did in the uh, the 80s and 90s. Here is a selection from the UFO controversy in America. The contactees were media events, and radio and television shows helped them gain publicity. The sensationalism of the contactees' claims always provided good entertainment. In New York, Long John Neville furnished the most consistent outlet for contactee stories on his late-night radio talk show. Menger's fame was chiefly due to his appearances on The Long John Show. Steve Allen's nationally televised Tonight Show featured many contactees, as did the NBC Betty White Show, on which Truman Bethram appeared several times. In addition to the national shows, many locally broadcast shows helped feed the growing public feeling that the contactees and the contactee-oriented groups made up the essence of the UFO phenomenon. The public found it difficult to distinguish between contact experiences and those of reputable witnesses. Number five. Number five. Flying Saucers. Serious Business by Frank Edwards. This book presents, according to its cover, overwhelming new evidence that they are real, followed by, lordy, 10 exclamation points. It is, quote, the book that smashes through the barrier of official silence with the exclusive story and is also the original coast-to-coast bestseller. It not only presents a number of really interesting UFO stories and sort of the sweep of UFO waves from the 1950s into the uh, into the early 1960s, culminating in the wave of 1965, but it also sort of presents them in a way that is credible. Frank Edwards was a radio broadcaster for I think Mutual Broadcasting um, System Service. He was a spokesman for um, major organizations. He was a name. And at some point, he gets fired from these high-profile you know, broadcasting positions, and that leads people to believe that the flying saucer stuff got him fired. There's some controversy about that, I believe. But Frank Edwards was um, was somebody who had some the horrible phrase that I, I hate, mainstream credibility. Uh, and, and that's something that UFO organizations like NICAP were always sort of looking for, some indication that that people who were well-known and important were paying attention to the flying saucers and thought they were, in fact, serious business. So the importance of Edwards' book is not just um, because of Edwards's position as a significant mainstream media figure, but also and I think we've got to got to say here that part of importance can come down to ubiquity as well. It's not the best UFO book. It's not the only UFO book that covered the these particular sightings or, or cases uh, that are covered here in Flying Saucer's Serious Business, but it was a bestseller. It went through multiple printings. It is, at least, you know, over the years, just anecdotally, in my experience, this is, uh, along with other paperbacks by Frank Edwards, this is the book that you would find lots of copies of at the Goodwill or Salvation Army or any other thrift store that had a bunch of sort of mildewy old paperbacks rotting in boxes that you dig through, hoping to find flying saucer books. That wasn't just me, right? So, um, it's everywhere. It's out there. And again, anecdotally, I know this isn't scientific evidence or anything like that. Um, I was talking to uh, to somebody who grew up in the 1960s and her memories of reading about flying saucers as a child in the 1960s, she remembered, you know, decades later was the article in Look Magazine 
that um, a lot of people have heard about and read uh, about flying saucers and also reading Frank Edwards books. So if somebody who is not a flying saucer person remembers in the early 21st century reading books about the subject as a child in the 1960s and remembers that it was Frank Edwards books that uh, she was reading, that tells me something. That tells me that this wasn't just a book that only flying saucer people read. This was a book that the general public was able to get their hands on, and it was written in a way as to be accessible to the general public in a way that a lot of flying saucer books weren't then and especially aren't now. So I think that level of inclusiveness is an important factor and and one of the reasons why I you know, put Edwards here in the uh, in the top 10 important books, even if it's not a book I particularly enjoy reading. Here's a brief sample from Flying Saucers, Serious Business. A careful study of the mass of evidence indicates that there is a definite purpose in the reported landings of UFOs in isolated areas such as swamps and deserts. There is a strong likelihood that they are making inspections or adjustments to the craft or its mechanism. By landing in areas unfrequented by man, such work could be carried out with little to no hindrance. We propose to operate in the same fashion should we find ourselves confronted with the same set of circumstances when we visit another planet. If the conclusions of the scientists in NICAP are correct, then we are probably witnessing the sixth phase of a seven-phase program of the UFOs. The appearance to the greatest number of people to demonstrate both the presence and the lack of hostility of the UFOs. If last summer's sightings were the sixth phase, or a major part of it, then the seventh phase, known to the military as the overt landing or deliberate contact, cannot be far away. Okay, the second five of the top ten is coming up, but first, some announcements. Next time, something different and special, maybe. Maybe not. Probably different. Hopefully special. If it turns out just to be me talking about a contact you've never heard of, just ignore it, that I was promising something different and special. Also, I'm going to be presenting at this year's Strange Realities Conference, which will be taking place entirely online. September 25th, 26th, and 27th. Go to strangerealities.com to check it out. Many great speakers are going to be a part of this event, so it should be a really good one. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thanks very much to those who've donated in the past. It's very appreciated. We are on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can also contact us by post at Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life is available everywhere you can find podcasts. And one last thing, our um, most recent Saucer Afterlife episode about the poetry of Otis T. Carr prompted some feedback from listeners. Uh, Here is one comment uh, that was left uh, on the episode at saucerlife.com. Quote, my favorite poem was the one about the atom and magnetism, mainly because I could make sense of it. On the whole, though, I was somewhat underwhelmed by his poetical talent. I was also a little disappointed that none of the poems reference flying saucers, extraterrestrials, or Tesla, unless, of course, I missed it, end quote. No, you didn't miss it. His poems were really not very much about typical Otis T. Carr things at all. That Adam and Magnetism poem is probably the closest to a a typical sort of Otis T. Carr rant about free energy that uh, that we get in those poems. And that kind of matches the, the rest of the book. There's a lot of that book that is not very much 
about the things that you'd expect it to be about, such as the talking sphinx and things like that. Uh, as for referencing flying saucers and extraterrestrials, it's I may be wrong, but in the, the stuff I've seen of Otis T. Carr and about Otis T. Carr, I think that the flying saucers that interested Carr the most were the ones he was trying to sell plans for to people and attempting to build with his free energy motor. He doesn't seem to really get on the whole extraterrestrial bandwagon. Um, I think it was in the clip that uh, from the Long John Nebel show that I played in the uh, the Aho and Carr episode, where uh, the the scientist asks him, you know, is this the same engine the UFOs use? And, and Carr sort of dodges that a little bit and, and talks more about his own invention. So Carr was a, a weird guy, and I think he mostly gets. Um, gets caught up with the UFO thing because of his connection with Aho. But uh, but most of the time, in a lot of ways, Carr is very much more of a, a free energy guy than a UFO guy. Okay, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for the comments about the episodes and the questions and things like that. Now, back to the, uh, the other five of the top ten. Okay, book number six in the top 10 important UFO books. I had to put a, uh, a, a at least one abductee book in here. Um, I have more than one, as we'll find out. But one that had to be in there, I thought, is Communion, A True Story by Whitley Strieber. And it's in here because, in a lot of ways, it is the, I, in my opinion, out of all the con. Uh, contactee, a little Freudian slip there, of all the abductee accounts that would be published in the 80s and 90s, I think Strieber's is the one that probably got the most market penetration, was the most ubiquitous. People recognize that classic communion cover painting, even if they didn't read the book. And also, Strieber's book, Communion, is, in my opinion, the best written of the abductee accounts. You've got the hypnosis stuff. You've got the the experiences. You've got all the surrounding context of how he's trying to deal with these things. And it's written in an intriguing and engaging manner that is missing from a lot of other abductee accounts, I find. And I, I think one of the reasons for that is that Strieber was already an established writer and, and a novelist um, when he wrote Communion. So he brings a great deal of, of sort of verbal talent to the uh, to the scene as he uh, as he writes this book. And it really does kick off the uh, the whole Strieber experience, which continues to this day. He's one of the most intriguing and interesting figures in the field over the last 30-some years. So Communion sort of gets my nod as the most important or significant abductee account that has been published. Here is a brief snippet from Communion, a true story. Where can such a journey as this end? Swaying in the wind with the stars or along the dark strand of faith? For me, it must be in the human dimension, for that is the only place where we can hope to make progress toward a fuller understanding. I do not have it in me to be a believer, nor can I be a true skeptic, for I loathe the narrow and love the broad. I cannot say, in all truth, that I am certain the visitors are present as entities entirely independent of their observers, nor can I say that I do not think they are here at all. It's not enough for us to ascribe the visitor experience to some unusual manifestation of known phenomenon and then ignore it. Science has not explained the visitors. Indeed, it has not even begun to explore them. 
nor is it sufficient to say that higher beings are studying us and remain passively waiting for what tidbits of knowledge they may toss us. Next, we have um, probably my favorite book on this top 10, but it's important too. Don't uh, don't think I'm just putting this in here because I like it. They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers by Gray Barker. This book is, is incredible, and it lays out a lot of stuff that would become highly significant things that would be important parts of the UFO folklore going forward, even to this day. Uh, the obvious one to mention is the uh, the emergence of the men in black, which is probably the most enduring aspect of the UFO sort of lore that doesn't involve actual UFOs. But it does other things too. It puts into print in a an organized way in a book, the story of the Flatwoods monster, which Barker investigated for Fate magazine way back in the day in Flatwoods, West Virginia. It also, and I think this is significant, and other people might not think this is significant, but it's my list. I think they knew too much about flying saucers gives us a valuable look into the low-level flying saucer club scene. Club scene, that not that kind of club scene, but the flying saucer scene that revolved around small organizations, every one of which had some kind of newsletter that they put out. You had everybody running around in their late teens and early 20s calling themselves investigators and and sort of, I mean, to, to use a, a more modern phrase, they're kind, of, they're kind of LARPing a little bit, a little bit of live action role play stuff here. Um, Gray, I'm going to make you chief investigator, said Al. You know, th- this sort of stuff, this sort of self-important, but it's a, a sort of innocent sort of lighthearted self-importance that comes from these these very young guys creating these organizations and um, and doing all of this stuff. And I think that's, for me, one of the significant things about this book is, is not just that it introduces the concept of the men in black, not just that it you know gives us the, the Flatwoods monster story in one place and, and sort of is, is Barker's sort of entree into the, the, the world of flying saucers. It gives us these, uh, these, these characters and these, these organizations and that sort of ground level UFO investigation stuff that if all you knew about was APRO and NICAP, you might not really have understood about. And like I talked about, I think in the, the Gray Barker and Al Bender episodes, a lot of the basic sequence of events outlined in the book is backed up by the correspondence and the documents in the uh, the Gray Barker collection down in West Virginia. So it's it's fun to see, you know, how how these folks interacted with each other and, and how they're trying to make sense of what's going on. But yes, it's probably most significant for the whole men in black thing. But I maintain the importance of it is that it's a story about some UFO investigators trying to find out why their friend got weird or weirder. Here is a selection from They Knew Too Much about flying saucers. The reels of the tape recorder continued to revolve as I sat there, amazed and dumbfounded. The tape ran out, and the flap, flap, flap of the take-up reel pulled me out of my... abstraction, and I turned off the machine. This was it. There must be something very, very real to the saucer mystery. The way it looked, any minute there might be a knock on my own door. I wondered just how I should react. The three men presumably had shaken Bender badly. Were they from the government? If they were, there must be some very funny things going on in Washington. Things one would not like to hear about. It looked as if the saucer situation had come to the point where even the government was scared. 
I could see a dim picture slowly revolving, then coming into mental focus. The USA and a day which might not be far in the future, a day that might already be upon us. The secret of the saucers was out, and the answer was so fantastic, the mind of the average citizen, imbued with the delusion that he was alone in the universe, had snapped. Next up, you knew this was coming, Flying Saucers Have Landed by Desmond Leslie and George Adamski. Uh, this is this is Adamski's first published account of his meeting at Desert Center, California with Orthon. Um, it is the, the sort of prototype contactee story. And the book is significant not just for including Adamski's story, which, if you'll recall, is, is sort of a addendum at the end of a much longer book by Desmond Leslie about the flying saucer mystery. What's also significant about it, apart from Adamski's contact story, is that Leslie is uh, is doing a fairly thorough job, not just of sort of exploring the UFO stuff since 1947, but connecting things to Atlantis, connecting the flying saucers to um, sort of ancient history. We're getting a little bit of ancient aliens type of stuff here in the early 1950s. And these are strands that would be developed by other people in uh, in Adamski's um, sort of contactee milieu and that, that larger scene. George Hunt Williamson, for example, would actually take more from Leslie's portion of the book, sort of those ideas, than, uh, than building on, on Adamski. So a significant book, not just for the contact story, but also for trying to find these, these strands that connect the flying saucer mystery of the 1950s to tales of Atlantis and the ancient world. Here is, uh, here is George Adamski talking in Flying Saucers Have Landed. If we continue on the path of hostility between nations of Earth, and if we continue to show an attitude of indifference, ridicule, and even aggression toward our fellow men in space, I am firmly convinced they could take powerful action against us, not with weapons of any kind, but by manipulation of the natural force of the universe which they understand and know how to use. I barely brushed against this force as it was being used in a subdued degree, yet I felt the effects of it for several weeks after the encounter. I have but one sincere purpose in narrating the foregoing experience. My utmost and urgent message and plea to every person who reads it is, let us be friendly. Let us recognize and welcome the men from other worlds. They are here among us. Let us be wise enough to learn from those who can teach us much, who will be our friends if we but let them. Okay, I said there were two abductee books and I wasn't kidding. The other one and maybe the more significant one than uh, than Strieber's book Communion is The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller, the legendary account of the Betty and Barney Hill encounter that occurred in, uh, in New Hampshire back in the 1960s, um, in some people's opinion. And I I can't disagree with this too strongly. It was, in many ways, the the prototypical abductee experience. It's the encounter where you have hypnosis. It's the encounter where you have medical experimentation, missing time, cars being weird. You've got all of this stuff here. Bits of those things had appeared in various places before, as we've explored on the show. But the Betty and Barney Hill encounter puts all of these pieces together and and forms the the core of what we sort of see now as the abduction experience and fuller's book about this is the cornerstone of 
I think, the entire sort of abductee thing in UFO literature. It's difficult to overstate the importance of this book for presenting Betty and Barney Hill's story to the uh, to the to the world. Really, I was going to say to the American people, but to the world. Now, there are other ways that people have. I mean, more people have heard about Betty and Barney Hill and, and have heard about their story than have read the Interrupted Journey. I'd I'd, I'd make that bet. But you don't get the 1970s TV movie. You don't get episodes of In Search Of. You don't get documentaries. You don't get subsequent books about Betty and Barney Hill without Fuller's book being sort of the impetus for getting their story out there. So I don't think there's any way to to downplay or to ignore the significance of The Interrupted Journey. Here is a sample. There are no final answers. Where one question existed before, several others have come up to take its place. But if it can even momentarily be speculated that the event is true, the far-reaching implications concerning the history of the world are obvious. Such an event would demand a re-examination of religion, politics, science, and even literature. International relations would have to be thoroughly re-examined. An urgent need for a study and extensive scientific report on the subject would be quickly indicated both national and worldwide. There is, in fact, evidence already extant that the United Nations is seriously considering a major scientific worldwide study of the subject. Finally, we have the UFO experience, a scientific inquiry, a critical appraisal of the UFO problem and its investigation by the foremost authority involved in this research Dr. J. Allen Hynek. This book is the book you pull out when you want to tell somebody about flying saucers in a way that doesn't sound entirely unbalanced and goofy. This is the book you pull out when people say, only weirdos really study UFOs. No scientists really look at it. Well, yeah, here, here's one. Um, and I've met people who, um, who say that. Heineck, as you know, was the scientific advisor for Project Blue Book. He was the driving force of the Center for UFO Studies. He was the science guy in the world of ufology. Um, And this book is a wonderful introduction to how a scientist approached that subject in his years of working with the Air Force and afterwards about uh, about this topic. My copy uh, by Marlowe Press here, interestingly, uh, the little subject tag, where to file it, on the back cover says New Age, which is sort of deliciously ironic and also kind of dumb. So Hynek's UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry, much like uh, The Interrupted Journey, impossible to overstate its, uh, its significance to the field. Here is Hynek. The typical close encounter of the third kind happens to the same sorts of persons who experience all other types of UFOs, representing the same cross-section of the public. The experience comes upon these reporters just as unexpectedly and surprises them just as much as it does the reporters of other types of close encounters. These reporters are in no way special. They are not religious fanatics. They are more apt to be policemen, businessmen, school teachers, and other respectable citizens. Almost invariably, their UFO involvement is a one-time experience, whereas we have seen the contactee cases almost always involve rampant repeaters. And the sightings of occupants is generally a peripheral matter. 
The occupants in these cases almost never make an attempt to communicate. In contrast, they invariably are reported to scamper away or back to their craft and fly out of sight. They do not seem to have any messages for mankind except, don't bother me. Well, there we go. The top 10 most important UFO books as chosen by me. Um, You probably dispute some of those. You probably have your own ideas about what books you would include in a top 10. Um, Throw those up in the comments or on Twitter or on Facebook or an email, and um, maybe we can compile a listener's top 10 important UFO books. Thanks for listening. In the show notes are links to books discussed in this episode, but they're behind another link so as not to spoil things for those who haven't listened yet. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.